This week's lesson is on Daniel chapter 8. And there is so much here. It's powerful. We need to pray that God gives us his spirit to guide us. I pray that this week you will carefully study Daniel chapter 8 and the lesson. There are a lot of opinions on Daniel chapter 8. And the Adventist church, I believe, on a fundamental level, has the truth and has the light in regards to Daniel chapter 8. Some have arisen among us who doubt the interpretation that we have, which I believe is solid. And so this week, there's going to be all kinds of discussion. The Desmond Ford disciples are going to be there in mass who have styled fundamental Adventist teaching as perfectionist, legalistic, because they've received a false view of the Adventist teaching. Now, I don't propose to be able to, in a short commentary on a Sabbath school lesson, show all the Adventist view or to even begin to, to, to share all that's in Daniel 8 or even understand personally, very frankly, all that's in Daniel 8. But I just want to affirm as much as I can the Adventist view. It's the biblical view. It's the consistent view. It's the view that is derived out of the text, 100%. But we've got to be prayerful and Christ-like and Christ-centered in our approach. Not combative and argumentative, but affirming the truth. And as Jude says, earnestly contending for the truth. Because the truth matters. Because the truth sets us free. And deception lies and darkness mislead us. And I think that the false interpretations of Daniel 8 and in particular verse 14 are of Satan uh, and they are a delusion and they need to be challenged on every level because they're not our message and people who believe them are not walking with us. Can two walk together lest they be in agreement? So God help us please to do a faithful job at looking at this, this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we begin just reading straight away from Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. Follow along with me if you could. If you have your Bibles, pull them out. Let's get to study. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision. And while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulei Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and became great. Now, we don't have to guess at what this ram represents, because after Daniel is in vision, in Daniel chapter 8, an angel Gabriel is sent to him so that he can deliver to him the interpretation of the vision and the uh, understanding of what these symbols represent. And in verse 20 of this chapter, the angel says, the ram represents Media Persia or the kings of the Medes and the Persians. It's interesting because one horn was longer than the other. And the Bible says in Daniel 7 that there is a bear which we can also identify very easily as the Medo-Persian Empire, was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth. And uh, so you see kind of a connection there, a correlation. So the vision in Daniel 8 begins with the world power, uh, assessing the world power that was assessed previously in Daniel chapter 7. But in Daniel chapter 7, Babylon was mentioned as well, represented by the lion with two wings. So what happens in the book of Daniel, and I, I'm sure that you guys are familiar with this, but it's important to remember. 
there is the principle in Daniel of repeat and enlarge. Where a prophecy is given that takes us over the same ground, a previous prophecy has already taken us over, but it's expanded upon, okay? So a time frame is communicated in Daniel 2, the rise and fall of four empires. Well, Daniel 7 communicates the same thing, the prophecy of Daniel 7. It predicts the same events in different terms, of course, and different symbols for sure. But then what happens in Daniel 7 is the same prophetic time period is enlarged upon. So it's the principle of you review the same time frame, and then you build upon it. You communicate more about it. This is a very effective teaching tool. So you lay a foundation, and then you build off of the foundation that you've already laid. So when you interpret Daniel 8, you're not starting from zero. You're not starting from, from scratch. Daniel 8 is not communicated to us in a vacuum. It is an enlargement on what has previously been communicated in other visions, in other dreams, in other prophecies given to us in the book of Daniel. So we, we leave on now from this great empire of the Medes and the Persians, and we read about the Greeks. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat became exceedingly or very great. The Medes and the Persians, described by Daniel as great. The Macedonian Greek Empire of Alexander becomes very great. In verse 21 of Daniel chapter 8, it says, The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. It's interesting because this corresponds once again with Daniel chapter 7. So you have a, 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 a representation of Greece. It's a goat and it has a long horn on top of its head. It conquers the Medo-Persian Empire and then in the height of its power, this big horn is broken and in its place arise four. In Daniel chapter 7, the beast that had four heads and it was a leopard, the leopard-like beast with four heads and four wings, that's the power that comes after the Persians. So you see a correlation there. Once again, this affirms the idea of repeat and enlarge. You can lay up the powers represented by the metals in Daniel 2, and the powers represented by the beasts in Daniel 7, and then these two animals in Daniel chapter 8, which represent kingdoms, and they all line up perfectly, okay? Now, we continue to read here in Daniel chapter 8. It says, Out of one of the four winds of heaven came forth a rather small horn. Now, this horn, it takes up the focus of a lot, of the, basically the, the rest of the chapter. Not, not the whole focus by any means, but it becomes one of the central features that, that, that Daniel's communicating about for the rest of the chapter. Out of one of them comes forth a rather small horn, which grows exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and towards the beautiful land. Now, just a few things. The ram was communicated to be great. Then the he-goat was communicated to be very great. And now this little horn, strangely enough, although it is little, is exceedingly great. Now that's interesting. You see a progression of greatness in this series or this line of powers. Now there's an irony here. It's a small horn, but it is greater. It becomes more magnificent, more influential, more powerful, more significant than the empire of the Medo-Persians, of the Medes and the Persians. Why would Daniel represent this exceedingly great power as a little horn? It's simple, because in Daniel chapter 7, there was a little horn. Please, please don't miss this. It's a simple but vital observation that I'm making here. Just, just, could you not see the irony? Okay, there's a ram. 
He's, he's, nobody can withstand him. He's great. That's the Medes and the Persians. But this angry goat comes, the Macedonian Greek Empire, from the west, and demolishes the Persians, and becomes very great, greater than the Persian Empire. And then a little horn comes, who becomes even greater than the Macedonian Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. Okay, wait a second. <laughs> wait a second. Why is it a little, a little horn? All Daniel's trying to do is point your attention to Daniel chapter 7 and say, look, that little horn of Daniel 7 came out of Rome. And so, in the line of nations, I am now speaking about Rome, okay? I'm talking about the Roman Empire. What other figure comes after the Macedonian Greek Empire and becomes greater than the Macedonian Greek Empire? My friends, it's not confusing. It's not Antiochus Epiphanes, a line of, one, of the, one, one king in a line of Seleucid kings. Disabuse your mind of that nonsensical, hierocritical mumbo-jumbo. It is not. It is not Antiochus. It is, by all means, it's, it's Rome. This, the, the little horn is a fitting symbol of Rome. Why? Because the little horn extended out of Rome in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 8 is not being given to us in a vacuum. Okay, now, uh, this little horn, it, it, it becomes exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. Now, I mentioned just for a second Antiochus Epiphanes. And some of you have perhaps never heard that name. Some of you know that name. Some of you uh, might think the little horn represented him. But uh, it can't. Here's why. Antiochus never became greater than the Persian kings, nor did he conquer in the directions that this little horn is said to conquer. So you have to conclude, if Antiochus Epiphanes is this little horn, that the author of Daniel, which you probably don't think was Daniel if you think the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes, was wrong was incorrect and mistaken when he described the direction of conquest of the little horn, okay? Those who reject the idea of a, of a sanctuary ministry, a sanctuary in heaven, in which Christ ministers on behalf of his people, they try to interpret Daniel 8 and the little horn of Daniel 8 as this historical figure named Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, now, Antiochus Epiphanes was a Seleucid king, and his name Epiphanes means great. Yet, when he ruled, his rule wasn't so great. It was, it was so not great that some of his own subjects, as recorded in historical records, didn't call him Antiochus Epiphanes. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, which is a derogatory way of identifying Antiochus. So he didn't conquer the way the little horn in Daniel 8 is said he was supposed to conquer. He didn't become greater than the Persian Empire. And in Daniel chapter 8, in verse 17, when an angel comes to Daniel to give him the interpretation of the vision that he's seen, the vision of the ram, the he-goat, the little horn, he says to Daniel, this vision, and let me just read this for you, please, because you just have to just disabuse yourself of any notion that this little horn represents the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, listen to this. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 17. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to to the time of the end. Or in other words, this vision finds its relevance in the end time. So it's an apocalyptic vision that extends down to the end of time. So yes, the vision involves the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then this little horn, but the relevance of all of this vision reaches down to the very end of time. What does Antiochus Epiphanes have to do with the end of time? Nothing. Nothing. He was a pre-Christ figure living in the second century BC, okay? It's impossible for this to be Antiochus Epiphanes. So I hope that I've not gone on too long on this to, to bore you, but it's important. Rome does fit the description quite well because it becomes greater than the Medo-Persian Empire and it, uh, it grows towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. It grows up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall onto the earth. It trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the daily from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Think about this. 
What I have just read describes both the terrestrial and the celestial expansion of the Roman Empire. So Rome, in its pagan phase, it conquers terrestrially. It conquers kingdoms. It conquers nations. It becomes the superpower of the ancient world. But in its papal phase, or in its Christian phase, it actually begins to ascend up to the very stars of heaven. It magnifies itself to be equal with the commander of the host in the person of the father, or the papa, or the pope, who is the successor of Peter, who is the vicar, or the representative of of Jesus, and it removes the daily sacrifice from Jesus in the sense that Jesus ascends to heaven in order to mediate his blood on our behalf, to apply his blood and to become our intercessor, whoever lives to make intercession for us, and who stands on our behalf. He's our high priest who ministers in the true tabernacle that God pitched and not man. And so how in the world can an earthly power How can an earthly power take away the sacrifice, the regular or the daily sacrifice? Well, the continual ministry and offering of Jesus on behalf of the human race is removed by an earthly priesthood that serves to intercede between men and God. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now as soon as you set up a priesthood of men, fallen, sinful, imperfect, warped men, to then become intercessors, you are taking away the continual, the timid, the daily. Now the word here, daily sacrifice, in most of your Bibles, or the word regular sacrifice is actually translated from the Hebrew word tamid. And tamid is always associated with the Hebrew tabernacle, and it just simply means the continual or the daily. And it is not just in reference to the daily sacrifice that was made in the sanctuary. It's, it's referencing the daily continual ministry of the sanctuary. So what this little horn takes away in its setting up of the papal priestcraft is the continual ministry of Christ on behalf of sinners because it sets up its own priesthood in place of the priesthood of Jesus. So really it erects an old covenant style ministry on earth and it usurps the authority and prerogatives of the ministry that's happening in heaven by Jesus. And it says, on account of transgression, a host will be given over to the horn along with the daily and it will fling the truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard one holy one speak to another holy one and said to the particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision be about the regular sacrifice, the transgression of desolation and the holy place and the host being trampled underfoot? So in other words, you could summarize verse 13. How long will all this garbage be allowed? How long will God allow this little horn to do what it's doing? How long will God allow Rome to do what Rome does? And then the answer, he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be cleansed or restored or vindicated. So in other words, the sanctuary is being polluted, is being defiled. Now what sanctuary must be referenced in this text of scripture? Well, since in verse 17, (laughs) since in verse 17, the angel who was sent by God to explain the vision says that the vision refers to the time of the end. Therefore, the events transpiring in Daniel 8, 1 through 13, extend all the way to the end of time. This must refer to not an earthly sanctuary, but the heavenly sanctuary within which Jesus ministers on our behalf. After 2,300 evenings and mornings, or days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. The sanctuary cleansing was an Old Testament ceremony called the Day of Atonement. It was the Day of Judgment in the Jewish economy. And it was the day where accounts were settled. And so, in essence, what Daniel 8 and verse 14 is saying, that after this prophetic period of time, 2,300 evening and mornings, that's when the sanctuary that's being trodden underfoot, the ministry that's being trampled underfoot, 
and misrepresented after 2,300 days, that's when judgment will begin. Now, it's funny because in Daniel chapter 7, you have a little horn. And there's a connection between Daniel 7 and 8 because the Roman power in Daniel 8 is represented by a, a, little, a little horn. In Daniel chapter 7, you see the, the line of nations, the succession of nations. And then you see the dividing of the fourth and the little horn coming up. And then the judgment of God. And then in Daniel 8, you see a little horn. And then you hear of a sanctuary that needs to be cleansed. Now, the cleansing of the sanctuary in the Old Testament was the day of judgment. Okay, after 2,300 prophetic days, the day of judgment would begin. Now, for those of you guys who are familiar enough with Scripture, Revelation chapter 13, the little horn is described in different terms. An amalgamated power that has the mouth of a lion, the body of a leopard, feet like a bear. Hmm, where do we see that imagery? Well, we saw it in Daniel chapter 7. Okay, so if a power is a composite of those powers, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, well, then who must it be? It must be Rome. <laughs> Rome in its papal phase, Revelation 13. Why? Because that beast is apparently Christian and extends to the end of time. And pagan Rome isn't around anymore, but papal Rome is. And then in Revelation 14, after the little horn is mentioned in Revelation 13, what do you have? The three angels' messages. Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. If you can't see all these biblical connections and parallels, then you can't see with all due respect. And I don't say that to be insulting or to be demeaning, but I'm sorry. That's the truth. It's 100% the unadulterated truth. Daniel 7, little horn, then a judgment. Daniel 8, little horn, then the cleansing of the sanctuary. Daniel 8, 17, this whole vision refers to the time of the end. This isn't Antiochus Epiphanes. This isn't some local sanctuary of the Hebrews back in the old days. No, 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 no. Hebrews 8, this is, this is about the true tabernacle in heaven, which God pitched and not man. And we have a high priest who's there. His name is Jesus. And he's been interceding in the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf since he ascended to heaven. But after 2,300 years, then judgment begins. Then all this fake, foolish, wannabe Christianity, mm, it's going to be shown to be what it really is in the courts of heaven. And a message that corresponds to what's happening in heaven is going to break forth on earth by a certain group of people who are described in Revelation 14 as following the Lamb wherever he goes. They're not defiled with the prostitute women that stand in their way on the way to Canaan and the false doctrines and teachings of the false churches. And they proclaim, fear God. Don't fear this false Christianity. Don't respect it. Don't regard it. Don't honor it. But fear God for who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. Fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. Now, what I'm saying may seem accusatory and defensive, but I'm sorry if it does. It's not meant to be by any means, but you can say that it is if that's what you want to say. The Christian church through the ages, my friends, it so misrepresented the character of God. The doctrines, the teachings of Christianity, my friends, we have to just accept it, are to a great extent of pagan origin. And they've come about through the mingling of Christianity, early Christianity, with Roman paganism. And out comes the church of antiquity, the church of the Middle Ages. It is not mean or rude to say with, with absolute certainty and confidence that the Christian church prostituted itself in paganism. There's nothing wrong with saying that. It's not unkind or mean or crude or rude. No way. It's the truth. Jesus is kind. Jesus is generous. Jesus is lovely. Jesus is humble. Jesus is sacrificial. Jesus is a servant. Is that what the church was throughout the ages of Christian history? No. It was dictatorial. Dictatorial. It was tyrannical. And why was it such? Because it, it was pagan, essentially with a Christian label. It's set up like this false, phony, baloney, nonsensical, illogical, irrational system on earth where you go confess your sins to a man, where you pray to statues and, and, and saints' bones. And where does this stuff come from? And, and there's people that go to purgatory and eternally burning hell. And God has brought some people in existence to determine them to the fire. And they have no choice in the matter because that's just his sovereign will. Guys, this is nutty stuff. 
and it's nowhere to be found in Scripture. And Seventh-day Adventists don't have to apologize because we oppose this stuff and we identify this as unchristian and ungodly. And this is the little horn that's being spoken of in Daniel chapter 8 and in Daniel chapter 7. And God's judgment, it comes and it judges this little horn. And judgment is given to the saints, the ones who know God for who he is and love God for who he's revealed to be in scripture. After 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Now, this 2,300 days is a prophetic period of time and is to not be understood literally. Why? Well, because what, what relevance is a 2,300 day period in the light of an apocalyptic prophecy that extends from the time of the Medes and the Persians until the time of the end, right? At the time of the end. It, 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 there's, there's no relevance, none whatsoever. Uh, I want to say a few things about the day for a year principle. Just, just, just convince you that it's biblical, that it's true, that it's valid, and that it should be used, okay? Firstly, in symbolic Bible prophecy, ter- these terms like time times the dividing of times, 1,260 days, these are terms found in Daniel 7 and Revelation 12, respectively, and 2,300 days, 70 weeks, to describe time periods, they are unique to the symbolic prophetic books, okay? Now, this is one indication that they're not to be understood literally. They're couched in symbolic Bible prophecy, and they're given to us in terms never used anywhere else in the scriptures, okay? That's point number one. Point number two, if you're a Jew, you, under the Jewish economy, divide up years the same way you divide up days. Did you know? Everyone should know this who claims to be a Seventh-day Adventist and who claims to be a Bible-believing Christian. The, the, the days of the Jewish, sorry, Jewish years were divided up the same way or ordered in the same way as the weekly cycle. Every seven years, Jews had a sabbatical year. So every seventh year was a yearly Sabbath. So days and years corresponded. That's point number two. Point number three. In Daniel chapter seven, the little horn is said to rule for 1,260 days or a time times in the dividing of time. If you want to prove that times, time times in the dividing of time represent 1,260 days, all you have to do is go to Revelation chapter 12 where those two uh, terms are used to describe the same period of time. Uh, we can know with certainty that the time frame that the little horn is said to rule in Daniel 7 is 1,260 days, okay? All of the powers mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, they all ruled for a long time. Ba- Babylon the shortest, right? Uh, so roughly you know, in the 50, 60 uh, year time frame. But then further to that, the Persians were in power for over a century. Further to that, the Greeks were in power for two centuries. And Rome for, depending on how you want to slice it, several hundred years. You know, at least, the very least, several hundred years. So, so, so follow the logic here. The, the, the focal point of Daniel 7 and the, the great antagonist of Daniel chapter 7 is the little horn. Okay, that's the terrible figure that calls into action the judgment of God in Daniel 7. Okay, that, that's the figure. So you see Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, division of Rome, little horn, judgment. That's the sequence of events in Daniel 7. In Daniel 8, you see Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome in both its pagan and papal phases, doing its crazy business, defaming God. And then after 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Then judgment, okay? After the 2,300-day period, that's when God will do something. That's when God begins to judge. And a corresponding message to that breaks out on planet Earth. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that's the, what you see. Now, what significance would a literal three-and-a-half-year period of time have in the light of a prophecy that spans mm, 2,600 years? And in the light of the fact that the powers mentioned in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 lasted for hundreds of years and persecuted for a lot longer than three and a half years, it has no significance. But if you apply the day-year principle to the 2,300-day prophecy, to the 1,260-day prophecy, guess what? It, It makes now sense, and the time frames become meaningful. Point number four, there's the old Ezekiel 4, 6 
Numbers 14.34, just because those texts are cited regularly and they're made fun of by some people doesn't mean that they're not valid. (laughs) In Ezekiel chapter 4, Ezekiel is acting out a prophecy. He is becoming in his actions a symbolic prophecy. And God says in verse 6, I have given you a day for a year. So you're going to act out symbolically for days what actually represent years. Okay, so there you go. There's nothing wrong with that argument. I think that's a solid argument. The last point is that the day for a year principle fits. It works. You know, you find me the three and a half year period of persecution. You find me the 2,300 days or split it in half if you want and do whatever you want. Split in thirds. Find me the period of time that it fits. It doesn't. It doesn't. Not at all. So the day year principle, it fits. It fits when applied to the 70 week prophecy of Daniel 9 and it fits when applied to the 1,260 days of papal supremacy predicted in Daniel chapter 7, and it fits when applied to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. So Daniel chapter 8 and verse 13. How long, how long will God let this go on? Verse 14 is the answer. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be set in order. That's when it will be set right. As the prophecy goes, we'll just read here. Uh, We're going to get into the interpretation and try to wrap this up in the next 10 minutes. But please keep hanging on. Uh, This is good stuff. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, and by the way, Gabriel appears to Mary to deliver to her the news of Jesus. And he says, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. So this Gabriel who's being spoken to by this voice is the angel who stands in God's presence, Satan's former companion. He is a light bearer, a bringer of God's light. Gabriel, give this man understanding of the vision. The vision being referred is the vision in totality. The vision that we've been reading about from verses 3 to verses 13 and 14. Okay, just the whole swath. The Hebrew word here, I pronounce Hazon. It's actually, it's spelled with a C at the beginning. It's the word that's describing what has been seen, okay? Now, it says, so he came near to where I was standing. So the purpose of the angel is to give Daniel understanding of what he's just seen. He doesn't understand, and the angel is going to give him understanding of the Hezon, the whole vision. So he came to near where I was standing, and when he came, I was scared and fell on my face. When angels get near to you, It's probably the case that you're going to fall on your face, whether you see him or not. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Or all of this information is given to you because its relevance extends down to the very end of time. That it as a prophecy altogether combines to stretch to the end of time. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright and said, behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Antiochus Epiphanes, sorry, I don't think so. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Don't forget, the angel is sharing with Daniel understanding about the Hazon. I'm going to sound ridiculous to you biblical scholars out there. I'm sorry. But in five years, there'll be a new pronunciation. Uh, So if I'm saying it wrong, maybe I'll be saying it right in about three generations of biblical scholars. The ram which you saw represents the Medes and the Persians. The shaggy goat, the kingdom of Greece, the large horn, the first king, Alexander the Great. The broken horn and the four horns that came up in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from this nation although not with his power. In other words, four generals, historic, which, which transpired historically as four generals who were under Alexander the Great, they divided his kingdom at his death because he had no successor. This was, and I can't remember their names, but Ptolemy, well, I guess I can. Ptolemy, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, and Lysimachus. They divided the empire, and the aforementioned Antiochus Epiphanes was a Seleucid king who did not come up at the end of the reign of the Seleucid kings, but in the middle, roughly. In the latter period of their rule, 
when the transgressors have run their course, a king, Rome, will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. And then it goes on to describe the Roman Empire and his actions, his machinations, and whatnot. But then it says in verse 26, the vision of the evening and mornings, which you have been told, is true. Now, I want to tell you something that's really, really important. In verse 26, when the angel says the vision of the evening and mornings, he uses a different Hebrew word here. The word he uses is mara. Aptly translated vision. Fairly translated vision, for sure. But a different word for vision is being used once the 2300 days is being referenced because an explanation of the meaning of that part of the prophecy is not given. So follow. The angel comes and the voice from heaven says, make this man understand the hazon. Okay? Gives him explanation of what he saw, the vision. And then, and then, we get to the end of that explanation of this great vision of the ram, the he-goat, the little horn. And read through the description of the little horn. It's, it's, it's Rome, man. It's, it's Rome and it's pagan and papal phases. But then it says... In verse 26, the vision of the evening and mornings is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision. And there was none who understood it. Now, why would you say nobody understood the vision when an angel just came to you and explained to you the vision? Well, he's not talking about the Hazon, the larger vision of Daniel 8. He's talking about the Mara, the 2,300 days. Now, he would understand the, the vindication of the sanctuary, the restoration of the sanctuary, the restoration of the daily ministry that transpires in the sanctuary. He'd know all about that. He'd be in no a need of more knowledge and understanding about that. What he didn't understand is the time frame. How long is all this crazy business going to go on? Verse 13. How long? How long? Well... 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. He's like, ah, the angel doesn't give him a start date for that time frame. So Daniel can't follow down through time to find out when does the sanctuary get cleansed? When does the process of judgment begin? When does God right the wrongs? When does the judgment in Daniel 7 that's depicted, when does it start? When does the judgment of vindication and validation begin? When are the books open? When are the lives evaluated? When are the true Christ followers discovered? Um, Where are the truly repentant people vindicated? When does that happen? When are the truly repentant people vindicated? He doesn't know. Nobody understands the vision. Now, here we go. Daniel 9, several years later, he's studying. Daniel's seen studying the book of Jeremiah. He discovers some really awesome stuff, and that's that the Jerusalem, the promise of God that Jerusalem would be restored is about the time frame that God said it would take before Jerusalem was was restored is about to expire. So he begins to pray. Daniel prays. He prays his heart out. And then an angel sent to him. And the angel Gabriel comes and says to him, Daniel, I have now come to give you skill to understand. And then in verse 23, he says, I've come to help you to, he he basically says, understand the vision and consider the matter. Now it's interesting. The word that Gabriel uses in Daniel chapter 9 is, wait for it, Mara. Now, at the end of Daniel 8, Daniel did not understand the vision, the Mara. He understood the vision, the Hazan, the larger vision of Daniel 8, the ram, the he-goat, the little horn. He got it. He got it. And all the activities. But what he didn't get is is, the time frame. Ah, Why couldn't he understand the time frame? Because he didn't have a starting point. Until 2,300 days, then the sanctuary would be cleansed. Okay, so when's that going to happen? I don't know. I don't understand it. I'm confused. Well, yeah, you would be. Well, then in Daniel 9, it says, understand the Mara. So whatever is going to happen in Daniel 9 is going to give Daniel understanding about the Mara, the vision that he didn't understand in Daniel chapter 8. What didn't he understand? When the sanctuary was going to be cleansed. So he needs a starting date. Daniel 9.25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be. Okay, so the 70-week prophecy given in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, it's concerning the Jewish people. It's a prophecy that concerns them, the restoration of their city, the future destruction of their city, and the Messiah 
and the future rejection of the Messiah. But this vision, the Daniel 9 vision, is going to give understanding of the 2300 day Mara or vision of Daniel chapter 8. Seventy weeks is determined upon your people. Seventy weeks. This is, what's, this is what is said. The angel comes and says, hey, Daniel, I've come to give you skill to understand. Consider the matter. Understand the vision. Seventy weeks or 490 years is determined for your people or is cut off for your people. Cut off from what? Cut off from the larger 2,300-day prophecy that you didn't understand. In Daniel chapter 8, it's cut off from that. And your people have 70 years to get it together. Just like after 2,300 years, people have time to get it together. And then the final judgment begins. Why does God begin judgment? And why are the books of God opened in heaven prior to the arrival of Christ on planet earth? This is a a massive question, but the simple answer is that God is unselfish. God takes into consideration the creatures who he has made, both angelic and human. And prior to executing his judgments on humanity, He has a family meeting where where he discloses what he and he alone only knows. We see this all over the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. They hear God coming to them in in the cool of the day. They run and hide themselves. And God says, Adam, where are you? Does God not know? Yeah, he does. And Adam says, "Ah, yeah, I hid myself because I was naked. Oh, wait, who told you you were naked? Uh, did you eat of the fruit? What, is, what, what do you mean? What, what God's asking questions. He's investigating. Now, later in the chapter, just a few verses on, God pronounces some judgments on humanity. Prior to executing judgment, God investigates. Why does he investigate? Because he needs information? No, he investigates for the sake of his creatures. He condescends. He's unselfish. God is unselfish. He condescends to meet people where they are. Doesn't the cross communicate this to us? He's the condescending, sacrificial, servant-oriented God, and he's unselfish. And so he, he begins a process of investigation before he executes judgment for the sake of those who aren't on his level. Are angels interested in the salvation of man? Well, sure. Have they been involved in the great controversy? Sure. It's devastated heaven. It's devastated the universe, sin. And God's restoring sinners. Do you think that they would want to know who's truly repentant? They can't read the hearts. They can't read the minds of men and women. And the Bible says in Hebrews 4 that everything is laid bare before God. He knows the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. Nothing is hidden from him. True. Yes. And angels, though. But angels, though, as great as they are, as glorious as they are, they don't have the perspective of God. So why would he begin an investigation process or a judgment in heaven prior to his arrival on planet Earth of the second coming of Jesus. Well, it's, to, it's to, to make known to the universe what he only knows and to validate those who are truly repentant. The judgment is according to works, but it's not based on works. Works demonstrate repentance and can communicate belief. Another way to say that the judgment is according to works, and by the way, the Bible teaches this in Romans 2, in 1 Peter chapter 2, all over the place. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, like you judged according to your works. Another way to just simply to say that. Another way to rephrase that statement is you're judged according to what you chose. Now, angels don't know what you really chose. You know, people, you know, can express themselves in all kinds of ways, but that doesn't mean that that's what they're really choosing, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Can the angels really know who's repentant, who's really, truly, genuinely saved? Um, No, they can't know. A judgment begins to disclose to the universe who's truly accepted Jesus and who truly hasn't. I do not propose the idea that you're judged on the basis of your works or that you have to reach a certain standard of perfection before you're accepted with God in the final judgment. I think that's heresy. I think that's nowhere in scripture. We're justified by faith without the deeds of the law, even in the final judgment. But in the final judgment, your works are displayed before the universe. Your inner thoughts, your motives, and your actions, they're all What's the course of this person's life? Where were they going? What were they really choosing? There needs to be an objective basis upon which judgment is made. And God displays for all to see who's saved and who's lost for real. Why? Because angels care. God's unselfish. He condescends for their sake. If a pedophile moved in my neighborhood, I'd be very nervous. You should see how you look to angels, your sins, your fallenness. They're infinitely pure and righteous beings. And you're going to move next door? How do they know that you won't with your own free will? 
turn back. How do they know you were sincere and genuine and real? Well, there's a final judgment where God has a family meeting. That's consistent with the character of God and the love of God and the unselfishness of God. When we Adventists teach that there's a pre-Advent judgment, an investigative judgment, we're not saying you're weighed in the balances and if your bad works are greater than your good works, and then you're lost. We're just simply saying it's demonstrated who's really saved. If you're not really a Christ follower, if you're a phony, you're out. That's why the Bible says examine yourselves to see whether you be of the faith. People don't have a problem with what I'm saying and what the Bible teaches on this subject unless they're a once saved, always saved, cheap grace Christian. That's a strong statement, but it's what I believe. I'm not trying to be mean. It's what I think. I'm running out of time here, so I'm speaking very quickly. Um, All throughout the Bible, God investigates before he judges. When Jesus comes back, his reward is with him. How could his reward be with him unless decisions have already been made? The judgment begins in Revelation 14, and this is prior to the second coming of Jesus. The sequence of Revelation 13 and 14, apostasy at the end of time, universal, uh, falling away from God, mark of the beast crisis. Then there's a group of people, they follow the lamb wherever he goes, irrespective of what the world is doing around them. And they preach the three angels' messages as a way to warn the world of what's transpiring and to bring people to the light, to the truth, to the Jesus of Scripture. And then the harvest after the three angels' messages. And that's the end of the world. So why would the judgment be, be pronounced in Revelation 14 to, to have come? That the judgment, you know, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come unless it had already begun before the second coming. So guys, there's so much more that can be said, but... You get a starting date for the 2,300-day prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. From the going forth of the command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be. 70 weeks. You come to Jesus perfectly when you find that fourth and final decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, which happened in 457 BC and was proclaimed by a man named, his name wasn't this, but his regnal title was Artaxerxes, uh, and his name was Longamanus. Artaxerxes Longomenus in 457 BC, fourth and final decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Track forward the time frame that the prophecy tells you to, and you come to Messiah the Prince. And it fits perfectly. This helps us to know that the 2300-day prophecy begins in 457 years before Christ and extends down to 1844. Since 1844, Jesus has been ministering on our behalf, and the books have been opened, and we've been living in the day a final judgment. And people would say, why has the judgment gone on so long and Jesus has not yet come? Well, Noah preached for 120 years and Jesus didn't come in the flood uh, because God is merciful and God is kind and God is not willing that any would perish but that all would come to repentance. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're no longer waiting for Jesus. Since 1844, Jesus is waiting for us to tell the world to fear God and to give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the fountains of water. The second angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, for she has made the world drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God just mixed out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here's the patience of the saints who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And so it is a message needs to be preached and the people need to be prepared for the second coming of Jesus. That statement carries with it baggage because a legalistic spin has been placed upon it. I get it. I get it. But the investigative judgment, the 2,300-year prophecy, is all about the character of God. God is love. Love is unselfish. Jesus has always been kind and merciful and generous and beautiful and lovely. Yes, God is just. And yes, God will requit. God will vindicate. But he's not willing that any would perish. His doctrines are pure. His truth is beautiful. Good religion makes sense. And the religion of Christ has been misrepresented over the ages by the little horn and the daughters of Babylon. And when we say this, we don't judge. We don't condemn. We reveal. And we care. And we let people know that the judgment of God has come. 
and we're living at the very end of time. God lets us know through the 2,300-year prophecy that we're living in the day of judgment because when you know where you're at in the light of prophecy, you know how you should carry yourself. Knowing where you're at is important in the scope of time, in the scope of prophetic time, it's essential. If you're at the beach, you act like you're at the beach. If you're at a funeral, you act like you're at a funeral. When you're at a cafe, you act like you're at a cafe. When you're living at the end of time, you act like you're at the end of time. This doesn't mean you don't have joy, you don't have fun, you don't live a healthy life that's balanced and rich and full and happy. No, it just means that you're real, you're genuine, you pursue Jesus. And this religion thing is not a joke for you. This is not a game. This is not play acting in church because of some social obligation or because of some cultural legacy that you've inherited from your parents. This is because you see your sinfulness before God and you see the glory and the goodness of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has brought you to conviction and to the righteousness of Jesus and to the judgment that will come. And you say, I'm going to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's God who has worked in me to will and to do of his good pleasure in the person of Jesus. And I'm going to follow him. And I'm going to deny myself and pick up my cross and follow him. When God came to Adam and Eve after they fell, he did not say to them, Adam, didn't you believe me when I said that in the day that you would eat of that tree, you would die? He didn't say that. He said, Adam, did you eat? There's only one answer to give. So let me ask you a quick question. Are you a Christ follower? Are we following Jesus Are we repentant in Jesus' name? Do we speak to God and commune with God all day? Do we pray without ceasing, which means pray with our lives? Are we connected to Jesus? If we abide in him and he in us, we will bear much fruit. But without him, we can do nothing. Are we authentic? Are we real? Or are we shams? Are we a facade? How much are we praying? How much are we communing with God? How much are we studying scripture? Are we studying to show ourselves approved to God? Workmen? who do not need to be ashamed, who rightly divide the word of truth? Or do we just trust in men? Are we just medieval in our perspective and trust trust to the pastors and the professors and have, you know, no, are we real? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves. We're living in the day of judgment. It's the second phase of the heavenly ministry of Christ. And Jesus is coming soon. God bless you. Have a great time this Sabbath. Bye.